0: Singing. You may be seated this morning. Well, t- today I'm excited to jump into a new teaching series. The teaching series that we'll be digging into is entitled Live Like Jesus. Live Like Jesus. And I'm really excited about this topic and thought. You know, when you think about living like Jesus, it can be a little bit uh, overwhelming, it can be mind consuming and a little bit uh, shocking to your system. How in the world am I going to live like Jesus? When we think about the New Testament and how Jesus lived his earthly life while he was here, there are a lot of things that jump into our mind of of how Jesus was. Uh, Some of those terms or words that jump into my mind right away is the word loving. Am I going to live like Jesus by being loving? You know, Jesus said in the Gospels, he was encountering a really important aspect of calling uh, for people to be like his disciples. And he said in John chapter 13, 34, he said, "...a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another." So here it is, living like Jesus, that we would do it by loving. Another word that came to my mind was the word forgiving. Forgiving like Jesus. You know, Paul would write to the church at Colossae, and he would say, Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And so if I'm going to truly live like Jesus, I have to be willing to forgive like Jesus forgave. Another word that came to my mind was the word holy. This is truly where rubber meets the road. It's like, wow, if I'm going to be shaped and designed into the image of Jesus Christ, It is a pursuit of being set apart from the world and the distractions of the world and setting out to pursue to be holy like Jesus. You know, in 1 Peter chapter number 1, he gave us this thought from God. He said, "'But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conduct, in every way of your life.'" not separated church world from your work world or your family world or your entertainment world. It's not, it's not being compartmentalized in our life so that I'll be like Jesus when I show up on church uh, in church on the weekends, but I can live carnally and in the flesh on the other days of the week. That's not where he's at here. Amen. So what he says here is that in every part of our life, in every manner of conduct, and then he says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So loving, forgiving, and holy, live like Jesus. Now, I know that in a crowd like this, there are words that are popping into your mind when I say, what does it mean? What does it look like to live like Jesus? So instead of raising our hand and calling on a bunch of you and we take time to go through each and every one, I want everybody to put in their mind one word that you think of when you say, live like Jesus. What does that look like? What does that mean? And then, in the count of three, I want you to just share it with everybody. So you don't have to look at your neighbor. I'm not Rand. He doesn't. He puts people in weird positions, right? Rand Humble. He's like, look at your neighbor and have a three-minute conversation. You're like, I don't even like this guy. Why do I have to talk to him? All right. And that's usually your husband you're talking about. So now that's not what we want to do. So, but on the count of three, just yell the word out that comes to your mind when I say, "Live like Jesus." Okay. Everybody got it in your mind. Here we go. One, two, three. Very good. Very good. So you know what it is, I can hear anything, I have a bad hearing anyway, so I don't know what anybody said today, but when we think of these words, or we think of these thoughts, these character traits of living like Jesus, for the next three months we're going to study this together, and we're going to encounter on Sunday mornings what it truly means, and what it really looks like for us to truly live like Jesus. And so as we launch today with this mission in mind to live like Jesus, we must start at the beginning And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, I think there's some extras there in the holder. And uh, feel free to grab one of those and to use one of those this morning uh, for some guidance as we will read together in just a moment. Now understand that God loves you just the way that you are, but He loves you so much that He doesn't want you to stay there. We talk often about being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We talk often about being convicted in our heart by God's work so that we can be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. So God loves us for who we are, yes, but he never wants us to stay there. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be more like his son. And today, if there's anybody even here that doesn't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, in a personal relationship. If you don't know Jesus that way yet, today can be that day that you begin to live like Jesus. Now, in Luke chapter number 2 is is kind of our launch pad for this whole series. Now, you think Luke chapter number 2, what comes to your mind? Say it out loud. The Christ, the birth of Christ, right? The announcement of the birth of Christ. We just came off of Christmas, and Luke 2 is where we always go. It's our reading, and that's there at the beginning. But as you get to the end part of Luke chapter number 2... Jesus is with His parents celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And then we hear this of Jesus growing and in His childhood. And so, let's look at Luke chapter number 2. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse number 41. Now, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when He was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem... And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors or the teachers, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him, Jesus they were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Knew, not, knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother, Mary, kept all of these things, all of these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So today, we dig into this text, live like Jesus. And we start here at the very beginning, beginning to live like Jesus. Father, we want to pause to show our dependency on you. We do not want to endeavor into this text or into this time through your message, without your words. We definitely don't want to speak words of man, but we want to speak from the Holy Spirit's truth. So govern our hearts today. I pray that as we sit there and we listen, may our hearts be open, may our ears be open to hearing your message, and may we be moldable, may we be humbled, so that if there's anything in our life that needs to be changed or challenged, that we would be willing to make those decisions today. Help us not to leave the same as we came this morning, but to be encouraged in your word and that we would take the next step to becoming more like your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray this request. Amen. So let's, let's kind of set the stage here for, for where we're at in the context of, of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, what's going on in their life. And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they're in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the annual feast called the Passover. Passover. And as they've come into Jerusalem, it's going to be a week-long celebration, and no doubt they are among thousands of people who have made the pilgrimage. They have traveled from all of their cities to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. There would have been a lot of noise and commotion going on in Jerusalem as there were businessmen who were selling some of the best unblemished lambs that they could find in order for people to be able to give this lamb to the priest as a sacrifice. Now, remember, this had become a business at this point, and in the life of Christ in ministry, he would even show up at the temple where there were money changers who had made this Passover, a very big money business opportunity. And so as a child at 12 years old, the business had already started booming. People are selling lambs and sheep to people to be able to use, and Joseph probably, no doubt, is one of those investors and buyers. And so as a family, they would find an unblemished lamb that they could give to the priest and give as the sacrifice. The beggars are scattered throughout the city. They have decked themselves with their best ragged clothes possible so that they could get just one more penny in their begging to all of the newcomers into the city. Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, he looks around the scene and sees such commotion. And even as he would see the priest slit the throat of the lamb and give as a sacrifice, no doubt as a 12-year-old son, he realizes that he one day will be that perfect lamb of God Who will shed his blood to give a life and ransom for all mankind? And so, as this scene takes place, Mary and Joseph have done what is responsible for them as they have together as a family celebrated the Passover. Now, our text picks up today and where we began reading in verse 41. It picks up that everything has been accomplished with this annual feast and the Passover is coming to an end and now it's time for the families to head back to their cities, to their hometowns. So Joseph, Mary, and the whole entourage of family members are traveling back to Nazareth together. And when we pick up in our text, they're headed out out of Jerusalem on the streets and going back to Nazareth. Now, Joseph and Mary as well as Jesus exhibits something very crucial and key throughout this passage that we will use all throughout this series for the next 3 months live like Jesus three simple words and we're going to look at that in this text together so first of all at the very root what does living like Jesus look like number 1 be intentional be intentional Verse 41 and 42, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. This was intent. This was purposeful on their part. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. You see, Joseph and Mary were righteous parents as they took Jesus to worship during the Passover feast. And we see their devotion and their level of commitment. This was very intentional. They are going to see this setting of a good example to Jesus as well as to their many other kids. And this is going to be very purposeful in what they do. Somebody once said, if we don't teach our children to follow Christ, the world will teach them not to. How important that is, is that we are purposeful and intentional in what we set as an example in our home and in our families. They follow, the children will follow our example that we set with the priorities, our purposes, and what we put our heart intent to. What we emphasize, what we love, what we cherish, they will do the same. We need to make God a priority in our home. We need to make God a priority in our life so that the generation behind us see that example and so that they see that God is important to us. In verse number 43, it says, "...and when they had fulfilled the days..." Now, most people would have stayed for only part of the eight-day celebration. Some would have come in, done their duty, done their part, and then headed out so that they could find back to normal life. But Joseph and Mary stayed the entire time, and we can all tend to make excuses, plenty of excuses of why we want to do what we need to do within our timeline and our time frame and that that's really important to us. And the excuses come in a lot of different ways. It's, it's the emphasis that we place on our life of what is really important. We all tend to make excuses as to why we don't emphasize the right things in our homes, why we don't emphasize the right things in our families, why those don't become part of our focus in our marriages. And it's all a part of distractions. We know what distractions look like. Distractions take our focus off of what is important and put them on immaterial things. And the distractions outside elements are are, are very rampant in our life. And if we're not careful and taking close account of them and evaluating them constantly, even good things can become bad things when they become distracting things from what is important in our homes, our families, in our marriages. Some of those things are like, other people's expectations. We, we think that we have to do A, B, and C because that's what's expected of us and people are looking to us to do that. And so we have to go here and go there and do that and do this all because of other people's expectations. Sometimes it's the, the pressures that we have at our workplace or pressures in our school or pressures in the commitments that we have made. Maybe the distractions come at just a lack of of knowledge or a lack of resources. And so dads, we say, well, I don't really know how to teach my kids to to memorize scripture. I don't know how to lead my family in devotions. And we say, I lack the knowledge or the resource, but that's where a church family comes together and we say, here's a resource or here's how we do it and, and this is the priority we place. And so those things that are lack of resources or lack of knowledge, how do I have a godly marriage? We read on it, and we study, and we ask questions, and we grow together. How do I have a strong marriage? How do I, how do I better my parenting skills? How do I grow with my kids, and how do I develop better parenting guidance in my life? Uh, how, do I, uh, how do I increase in my knowledge of the Scriptures? How, where, what am I going to turn to? And, and by the way, this Wednesday, our, we're launching our discipleship program, our discipleship ministry, this new phase Whereas we just had 25, 30 people completed a phase and now they're ready to disciple others. And we've got about six or seven that have signed up or requested. And so some of them are launching next Wednesday, some next Sunday night. And if that's you and you say, I'd love for somebody to just pour into me some, some understanding and knowledge of scripture and biblical truths and biblical character traits then fill out a card at the update card there in the, in, the, in the holder and just put your name and say, I'd like to be involved in discipleship. and we'll partner you up and we'll help you to learn and to grow. So we can't use that distraction. It says, I'm, I'm limited on my resource. I'm limited on my knowledge because anybody who really wants to grow will do what it takes to learn to grow so that they become stronger and better and more intentional. Sometimes we say, I've got too much going on. I'm too busy, too worn out. And ultimately, we're too entertained, and that becomes a distraction. In verse 46 and 47, Jesus intentionally spent his time in the temple interacting with the teachers, and he was grasping new understanding. He has recorded some incredible child prodigies. We would say, wow, here's the 12-year-old Jesus sitting in this room, in this temple with these teachers, these scholars, and even marveling them as they were astonished at his understanding and answers. And we think back at some of the prodigies, they have performed amazing feats. Now, some of you in here say that you were a child prodigy, uh, and I understand. I think that about myself as well. But um, (laughs) here's one, Christian Frederick Heineken. He was known as the infant of Lübeck. He knew the major events recorded in the Bible by the time that he was one years old. That's a child prodigy. The most famous child prodigy was the composer Wolfgang Mozart, and he began playing the keyboard by ear at the age of three, and then by the time he was six, he began composing his own pieces, and at the age of eight, he composed his first symphony. Now for you, not musical, playing the keyboard by ear does not mean like this, okay? I know some of you, when you were three, that's how you played the keyboard, all right? This is a prodigy in Mozart. There's also his name was Kim. A more modern day prodigy in 1963, a child was born. His name was Kim Ung Young, and he was born in South Korea. By the time he was four years old, he was able to read Korean, Japanese, German, and English. Now, English vowels and words. But here he is, four different language. He was also solving complex calculus problems on Japanese television. By the way, Japanese television calculus is a lot easier than the US, so don't worry about that, okay? <laughs> at the age of 7, Kim came to the United States by invitation of NASA and he earned a PhD in physics before he turned 16. Definitely modern-day true prodigy. But I look at all of three of those, that's weak sauce when you think about this. Another prodigy, Bailey Grant. That's right. <laughs> For you don't know, that's our oldest daughter. She's nine years old now, but at the age of four, she knew how to shoot a straw wrapper and hit her target every single time. If you don't believe me, you asked the waiter at Longhorn last Sunday because she nailed him right there at lunch. Now, Bailey was aiming for Rand Hummel, our guest speaker, and she missed him and hit the waiter to the horror of her mother, but I thought it was great. Because at that moment, it wasn't dad's fault anymore. It was Rand Hummel's fault because he shot her first, all right? no matter the comprehension and knowledge and experience that they can bring compiled and combined together, they are pale in comparison to the 12-year-old Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for he was a wise, developed young man, and he was intentional with his time, and be intentional with your parenting. Pray together with your kids, worship together. When you have your kids in here, sit with them and worship together with them. Hey, hey, teach them how to take notes. We've got notes online, parkwaybaptist.org. Click on that. You can do it digitally. We put handouts in the bulletin every week. You can follow along. One of the things that Natalie is doing in developing Bailey in Brooklyn is that on Sunday nights when they're in the service together, she's teaching them singing. She's teaching them harmonizing, how to harmonize. She's teaching them taking notes. This is a part of worshiping together as a family. That's a very important parental responsibility of being intentional. We're thankful for a good children's program and a good youth program, but we're not as parents pawning them off to Michael Battle and Scott Smith, hoping that they'll somehow figure out our kid and make things work in the end. It is our responsibility as parents to be intentional with raising our kids to love and to live for God. And they're not going to do that unless they see that exhibited in mom and dad and grandma, and grandpa, and people that they're following. Pay for one another, laugh together, plan together, and succeed and fail together. Marriage is hard, and it takes a lot of work, so don't give up on it. Every day that you wake is a God-given grace moment for you to invest in that marriage. Hold yourself before God and man that you would love, honor, and cherish through thick and thin, through good and bad, through health and sickness, and that is your partner in life, and life gets pretty stinking hard at times, but you have to be willing to say, this is not my enemy. This is the one God has blessed me with, and so be intentional in your marriage. That means work at it. Learn how you can laugh together. Laugh at yourself. That makes it a lot easier so that your spouse has something to laugh at. And then learn how you can succeed and fail together. That's all based on experience. (laughs) Be intentional in your relationships, at your workplace, in your neighborhood. Don't have superficial relationships that are just at the surface. Ask questions Begin to converse, dig deeper, learn people, learn who they are, what their ups and downs are, and what their struggles are. And learn how those those intentional moments can come in your sphere of influence. Be intentional with God. Life of living for God, how it was empty and vain because you just lived it for self.
1: Be intentional
0: with God. Number two, not only be intentional, but be relational. In verses 43 and 44, when they had fulfilled the days, they had finished their part at the Passover. As they returned, the choosing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk, among their relatives and their acquaintances. And Jesus is going to give us an example of this in verses 48 through 51. But when we look at this, the parents' worst nightmare has taken place. Joseph and Mary have forgotten their child they have left him behind in an unfamiliar place. Now, before we say how unresponsible parents they are, how many of you have accidentally left your child somewhere? Would you raise your hand? Anybody at all? Nobody's willing to admit it. Just one. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Nobody else has ever... Okay. Thank you, Patricia Pepitone. And it was here at church. So that's okay. It's excusable. You left him in a very safe place. All right. So that happens at times. We lose track of our child or we forget them somewhere. We've never done that because we love our kids. But, um, you know, some people just, they do. So, um, but, but when you think about that moment, think about what Joseph and Mary were facing. Now, we know that they were righteous parents. For they were following in the ways that God had led them. They were chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus. So no doubt these were righteous parents. But they weren't perfect And here they are forgetting Jesus in Jerusalem. You know very well that they were quietly blaming each other in their minds, right? You think of Joseph God. What has she done? How is this even possible? Who does that? If there's one rule, it is make sure that the Savior is in the caravan. Joseph, no doubt, is just intense in his thinking toward Mary. But you know Mary... She's just like any other woman. She is quietly thinking to herself, I can't believe he's looking at me like that. (laughs) I know he's blaming me, but he is the man. He is supposed to take care of the family, it's his son too. How could he leave his son in this city? I can't do everything, you know. I woke up early, I packed up the tent, I made breakfast for everyone and packed a picnic lunch for our trip. What was Joseph doing? Just chatting with his brothers? At least he could have done is made sure that Jesus, our son, was with us. Couldn't he just keep an eye on the boy? So moments of intensity in this relationship is finding its peak. But Mary and Joseph worked through this together as responsible parents. The boy Jesus stayed behind. He tarried while his family and the large caravan left. And Jesus was not doing an act of disobedience or rebellion towards his parents. He was responsible, he was always obedient, he was sensitive, and he was thoughtful. In every way, the 12-year-old Jesus was sinlessly perfect. And in verse 48 through 51, we see this relational Jesus take shape. Because in verse 48, when they saw him, by the way, they traveled a day away from Jerusalem, one day, realizing, no Jesus, your fault, what are we going to do? They travel a day back to Jerusalem, and as they're looking, finally we see that whether verse number 46 is telling us that after three days in the city of looking, or three days total, it's immaterial really to the story, but whether it was three days or five days, they find Jesus, and when they find him, he says, well, what have you done? Our, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing, and Jesus responds with a very key transitional statement in the life of Jesus. Because what we see here in this passage is Jesus' responsibility to his parents is now moving toward his responsibility to God and the fulfillment of his Father's will. That's really important to see because Jesus, live like Jesus, intentional and relational. Jesus is always going to be respectful and obedient to his parents. He's always going to be subjective to their leadership as mom and dad. But we're also going to find that Jesus' mission here on earth was to come and to do his heavenly Father's will. He will all throughout the life of Christ, from his ministry years, he will always reference back to why he is here. And he is here in order to do the Father's will. That's a key emphasis in this relational sense of living like Jesus. Joseph and Mary, they were responsible... And as they corrected their human error while pursuing a better understanding of their child, they were exhibiting a mode of being relational. You see what happened in verse number 40? They understood not the saying. They didn't comprehend exactly what Jesus was telling them. But in verse 51, it tells us that Mary kept all these sayings in her heart. Even to when it comes to the first miracle of Jesus some 18 and a half years later, where the adult Jesus is performing his first miracle, Mary says to everyone, almost in this tone that, I don't really see the big picture, but do as Jesus says to do. Because she trusts Jesus. She knows the relationship with her son Jesus, that he has come to do the mission. We have a tendency not to trust a lot of people. Now, if you've been burned and you've been hurt before, uh, that tends then to play into it that you're always kind of skeptic about everybody that you interact with, and you wonder if anybody's genuine anymore. Do they really love me? Uh, do I trust them? But here we find in this relational aspect that Jesus is going to show us as a wonderful example, a wonderful example of even though we know there's reason not to trust somebody, we still build that relationship. Think about the 12 followers of Jesus, his disciples. Do you think Jesus was shocked by what Judas did the night of the crucifixion? Do you think think Jesus was shocked by what what Peter did in denying Christ three times? None of that came as a shock or a surprise or plan B to Jesus. But when he called these men to follow him, he knew that a Thomas would doubt. He knew that a Philip would doubt Doubting Thomas always gets the label, but if you study the life of the disciples, you'll see Philip was just as big of a doubter as Thomas ever was. You would see even Luke when uh, you would find that, when, uh, excuse me, when you find Andrew, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew didn't even really trust that Jesus was capable. Five loaves, two fishes, what is this among so many? Psh, nothing can happen with Jesus. So Jesus knew the raw and authenticity of these men who he built a relationship with. He poured into them. He had no reason to trust them. But he still loved them. and Still gave them time and energy and focus. Even knowing that the moment of rejection would soon come. That's the example of relationship that Jesus gives us. By the way, he's a wonderful example for all young people to follow. If you're in your 20s and below, look at Jesus. He grew in a balanced way without neglecting any part of life. His priority was to do the will of his father, Matthew six thirty three seek ye first the kingdom of God. He knew how to listen, verse 46, and how to ask the right questions. He learned how to work and he was obedient to his parents. And By the way, whatever age bracket you're in, those are good examples for all of us. Some of you in here struggle with asking questions, not questioning authority, but asking questions. Sometimes the focus is so much on you that it just doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people are facing. It doesn't really matter their experience. It doesn't matter what they offer because it's all about you, your security, or insecurity. And so we all need to learn how to be more relational. Relationship is a crucial part of Parkway. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our culture. See, we need to build relationships with people outside of these four walls. We need to look for people that we can build these relationships and partnerships with. For relational ministry to be most effective, we need to serve together and minister together. We need to get out into our community and be the hands and the feet of Jesus And and sometimes the win is not identified by building our own kingdom here at Parkway. The win is identified by you and me being the feet of Jesus, sharing the love of Jesus with a lost and dying community so that they meet our Jesus personally. That's our focus. So it's not about building my group. It's not about expanding these walls or adding more chairs. It's about being love of Jesus in a community. He would exemplify this all throughout his life. Now, write these down. Here's some characteristic traits of a relational person. First of all, they ask about others. If you're going to truly be a relational person, now some of you say, uh, uh, Peter, I, I'll, I'll check out. I don't want to be a relational person. I say, shame on you. That's not living like Jesus. And I'll just leave it at that. You see, I don't want relationships with people. That's not how Jesus lived his life, and that's not what he showed for us to do. Listen to people with whom you have regular characteristics. We learn to ask about others. Listen to people with whom you have regular conversations with. Quit thinking ahead of them of what you want to say. A key signal of relational health is a desire to direct the conversation to concern and questions about others. In your conversations, quit thinking, how am I going to let them know that I've got it worse than them? How am I going to let them know that that my life's been worse than theirs? How am I going to let them know that, oh, woe is me, but if you lived in my shoes for a day, you wouldn't be complaining? That can't be our thought. In order to be relational, we ask about others. Secondly, we rarely speak about ourselves. Some people are oozing about themselves that all you hear come out of their lips is about what they've done, what they're going to do, and who they know, and who they hope to soon know. What they've accomplished, and all of their accolades, and they rarely speak about other people. So the characteristic trait of a relational person is that they ask about others, they rarely speak about themselves, and then they're intentional about relationships. There's that word again, that they're intentional about relationships. And then number four, they're not usually defensive. They're not defensive. And they constantly seek input from outside sources. Be a learner. Read. Have conversations with others who have gone before you. Uh, do what you can to learn from others. Listen to podcasts, uh, uh, read articles. Find topics that interest you in order that you can consistently, constantly seek input being poured into your life. Number three, and we're done. Jesus gives this example, as well as Joseph and Mary, to be missional. If I'm going to live like Jesus, I need to be intentional, relational, and missional. Now, Joseph and Mary, they they practically lost Jesus, but they didn't stop until they found him again. They responded with parental care. They responded with urgency. They responded with love. Now, when you think about our lives, do we live with a mission? Do we live with this care? Do we live with this urgency? Do we live with this love? Joseph and Mary had a new mission. It wasn't to get home to Nazareth. That was what they had hoped for. But now their mission was to find their lost son, Jesus. So now they were on track with urgency, love, and care. We all have a mission that God has equipped us for, and we have to be eager and ready to. Our mission here is at Parkway. If everything, we saw this quote this week as a team, as we're studying our core values and our mission statement and what's important here at Parkway. And the quote that the author says is, if "If everything is important, nothing is important. Somebody says, what's your favorite ice cream? Ugh, I love all of them. Well, then you don't have a favorite ice cream. Because if everything is important, nothing stands out as being important. Well, what's your favorite pizza topping? Pfft, I'll take it all. I love it all. Well, then you don't have a favorite pizza topping. Because everything is important, therefore nothing is important. And we look at that with our lives. We try to say that everything is important. If it's in front of me, it's important. But No. God wants to fine-tune your focus. God wants to chisel away the distractions that are keeping you, though they may be good things, they're holding you back from fulfilling the mission that God has called you to do. By the way, a mission that only you can do that maybe God hasn't equipped somebody else to do. So we have to know what that is. Identify that and say, God, you've equipped me for this. You're gonna, you, you want me to be connected with that, to this mission, By the way, remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? In the second letter, he wrote in chapter 1, "...who hath saved us," speaking of God, "...saving us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began." Wow. (laughs) You want to find your true identity, your worth, and your calling? To say, God, what have you equipped me to do that was even happening through Jesus Christ before this world even began? What did you say Peter Grant's mission would be? Because if I fall short of following after that, God, I've missed the mark. We may be able to say, look at all that I've accomplished. But if we're missing out on God's mission, we're totally missing the mark. Because if everything is important, nothing is important. Now, Jesus grew with his mission, and his mission was to seek and to save the lost. And so people who hear about this mission, and they may be objective to Christ, because for the very first time, they're trying to see, really, that I have a need in my life. You're saying that that I need Jesus to be my, my Savior and to be my Lord? And so sometimes people need time to comprehend God's love. For them to realize that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. We also know that God so loved the world that he gave his only... Be- so you cannot, you cannot find a greater love than the love of God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die in your place for our sins. And then sometimes people need time to grasp the sacrifice of Jesus. That this greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then they need time to admit the shortcoming and need for a savior. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin, there's going to be a heavy payment. And that payment is eternal death. But that's when Jesus stepped in for you and me. And he paid the price as the perfect lamb of God. As he shed his blood on the cross So that today we can have an assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that eternal life can only come through Jesus. As Scott said in the beginning of our worship time together, there are a lot of people through all centuries who have dedicated themselves to good works. And they have said, if I can do enough good works and by the end of my life I've completed the task, I will be taken into heaven. How could he reject such a good, moral, noble individual? But that's why the message of the gospel is so clear that we must proclaim. Because it is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So true salvation for eternal life in Jesus comes by admitting your sins, believing in your heart that Jesus Christ died for you and confessing that before the Lord saying, I want you to be my Savior. He developed In verse 52, we see that Jesus developed intellectually, physically, in grace with God and man. Verse number 40, the child grew. He waxed strong and spirit-filled with wisdom, and by the grace of God was upon him. And we're going to see 18 years later that God the Father would proclaim his approval at the very baptism of Jesus when he came out of the water, Matthew 3, and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. From here, Christ would continue to be an example of a life lived out with the aim to be intentional, relational, and missional. Now, for the next three months, we're going to discover this together, but let me give you just one last preview as we finish. Because in Matthew 4, 19, you remember, he was walking by the seashore and he saw Peter and Andrew, and he called them away from being fishers of fish to being fishers of men. And he said to those two soon-to-be disciples, he said, follow me. Come after me. Follow me. That's intentional. He says, if you will follow after me, I will make you. Now, that's not a forceful word. Uh, That's not a verse that says, I'm going to make you do something. When he says, I'm going to make you, that's relational. Because he says, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to teach you, I'm going to show you, and you are going to see and experience something incredible. He says, intentionally, come after me. Relationally, I will make you, and missionally, he says, fishers of men. This was not going to be shallow relationships with Jesus, he was in- to do the Father's will. And as he fulfills the Father's will, he's looking to pour that into others so that you and I today can say, I want to live like Jesus. And if you want to live like Jesus, then you be ready to live a life that is intentional, relational, and missional. And if you'll pursue that with me, we're going to have an awesome journey for the next three months as we begin to live like Jesus. Father, I thank you for the teaching from your word of how your son, Jesus Christ, is a tremendous example to us as one that was very purposeful in what he did. Nothing was done by accident or or, or by coincidence. It was all done on purpose. And so even now, as we look at Luke chapter 2 and Joseph and Mary and Jesus, we see this intentional and relational and missional mindset. As we see one of the very first acts of Christ's ministry after being baptized, going into the the wilderness and facing temptation and overcoming that temptation. And then he calls his disciples. We see it lived out. He was intentional, relational, and missional. As we study his life all throughout the Gospels, we see that every time we turn around, he was exemplifying these three things. And so in our hearts today, as true followers of Christ, would you prompt us to live intentional, relational, and missional. Father, if there's somebody here today that doesn't have that relationship with your son, Jesus, would you draw them to yourself? May the Holy Spirit convict their heart and may they have the boldness that says, today, uh, if I die, I don't know if I would go to heaven. Would you work in their heart and stir them right now? For the Christians all around the room, would you convict our hearts of areas in our life that we need to be more intentional, relational, and missional? Well, thank you for what you're going to accomplish during this time of invitation.